Well, let's grab our Bibles as we think about worshiping the Lord through the study of his word, and I'll invite you to head to the Gospel of John in the New Testament, chapter 1, if you would make your way there. John chapter 1, if you need a Bible, just let us know. We can keep some in the back, and we can, we can definitely help you out in that way. Just raise your hand good and high. And there's a note page in your bulletin. If you wouldn't mind, retrieve that note page because that's going to be, I think, a help to us along the way. And I will ask one more favor of you, and that is if you would please silence your cell phone. If you haven't already done that, that would be great. uh, We know you're a popular person and you want those phone calls, but uh, silence that phone for us if you wouldn't mind. I'll invite you, church family, to stand with me in honor of the word, and I'm going to read for us the first 14 verses of John chapter 1, words that will be familiar to many of you. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And we say, church family, amen and amen. You may be seated. If you were with us last time, you know that we stepped for the first time into a brand new study series last Sunday morning, a study of the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, then comes the fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John, written by one of Jesus' closest disciples as he was guided by the Holy Spirit. John pens this 21-chapter book really with one driving goal in mind as he writes. He wants us... He wants us to know who Jesus is and what he has done for sinners so that we can believe in Jesus as our Savior confidently and enter into a personal relationship with God that will last forever. That's John's goal for writing his book. How do we know that? Well, do you remember John chapter 20 from last Sunday, verses 30 and 31? Because he tells us exactly why he writes in that place. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, I want you to know who Jesus is and what he has done for you so that you will believe in him with an unshakable confidence and have life forever with God through faith in him. That's what I want. That's why I'm writing. Jesus, know him and believe. That's our study series for the next several months at least. (laughs) Maybe more. I don't know. Now, we dove into the first three verses of chapter 1 last time, and I was thinking about these verses again this week, still sort of reeling after what we shared together last time and what these verses, these three verses declare. And it caused me to think about something else. You know, when guys talk about a really fast car or they are debating about which muscle car has the most muscles, one of the things that inevitably comes up is how fast that car can go from zero to 60. That's a big deal. It's, a, it's kind of a standard of measure for a fast car. The quicker that a car can go from zero to 60, well, the more muscle it has under the hood. Three seconds or less is considered super fast. If we were to apply, church family, that same logic to Bible books, how fast the book goes from zero to 60, then the Gospel of John would have to win every single time. Because John goes from zero to a hundred in just three verses, doesn't he? If you were with us last time, you know this is true. In just three verses, he declares by the Spirit of God for absolutely essential truths about Jesus that we need to know. And he just rifles off the line, beginning in verse 1. On your note page as well, John tells us this. In the beginning was the word. Jesus is eternal, John says. And the word was with God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is with God. And the word was God. Jesus is God himself. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the not made maker of all Things that exist. Right off the line. From zero to a hundred in three verses. If you weren't with us last time, John calls Jesus the word. Because just as words, whether they are written or spoken, bring into being invisible thoughts and ideas and purposes that we might have in our minds, Jesus is the greatest visible and audible expression of the heart and mind and intentions of an invisible God. He is the word from God. To see Jesus is to see God. To know Jesus is to know God. He's the word. And that's why John uses that term. He wants us to know as we're reading every page of his gospel. He wants us to know right from the very beginning, this is who Jesus is. He's eternal God. Second person of the Trinity. The maker of all things. 
And then John, with his foot still to the floor and giving it full gas, he then next says this about Jesus in verses 4 and 5, which will be new ground for us in our study today. Verse 4, in him, in Jesus, the eternal creator of the universe who was with God and is God, in him was, what's the next word, church? Life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In him was life, John says. In other words, in the beginning, before there was anything else but God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, before there was anything else, there was life. In him was life. Now, brothers and sisters, this statement, these four words, we could spend several weeks just teasing out the truth of these four words. This morning, I want to share with you two huge truths that... that aren't even a part of what John is thinking before we step into what I think he is trying to communicate to us. I don't want us to miss two huge truths that, that are, are right there in those four words. So let's tackle that first. And so on your note page, right in the middle of your page, the words in him was life. If you're with me there, they mean two things, huge truths. First, that ultimate reality is a life-giving person. Would you agree with that? That ultimate reality is a life-giving person. That truth is hidden within the, within the words, in him was life. In any discussion about the absolute center of what is real, I mean really real, that the nexus of reality, the, the ultimate in reality, it's a living God who is the center of reality. A living person. Ultimate reality is alive and the source of life. That truth is buried in these four words. Mom, Dad, your child comes to you, four or five years old, and and asks you, Mommy, Daddy, where did God come from? They're going to do that, right? They all do that. Where did God come from? And you'll probably say something like, well, honey, actually, God didn't come from anywhere. He has always been. He never had a beginning. Everything else has a beginning, but not God. When there wasn't anything else, there was God. And then your child will pause for a moment, ponder that. And then they'll ask you this question. But how did he get to be that way, mommy, daddy? And, and you will say, that's a great question. That's a great question. Honey, you've grown to be the way you are, and, and, and you're going to grow even more, and you're going to change and become more than you are even right now. But God has always been the way he is. He, he's been who he is. He's been what he is forever and ever and ever and ever. He's always been the way he is. That's what it means to be God. And your child will say, oh, okay. And they'll go out and play. 
And they'll never say thank you for the deep theological insights that you just shared with them. Now, church family, when we say God has been who he is and what he is forever and ever and ever and ever, one of the things that we are saying is God is life. That's what we're saying. Not only is he alive, but he is life. And he's always been this, a living person who is in himself life, life's source. A divine person, alive always and for all of eternity, as far back as you can go, forever and ever and ever, there is this changeless reality, life in God. Before time, in time, after there is no more time, ultimate reality is alive in Jesus was life. That truth is, is right in that, in that four-word statement. That feeds then into a second truth, which is that physical matter did not give rise to life. Life gave rise to matter and life. From life, From him who is life comes all matter and life. That truth is buried in these four words. Once there was only life in God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and there was no matter. And then he who is life created matter and more life. Now there's both life and matter from the one who is life. And here, church family, two great worldviews collide. The there is no God worldview collides with the Christian worldview right here. For an atheist, the way it works is this. In the beginning was impersonal matter and energy. No God. Just impersonal matter and energy. Where the matter came from doesn't matter. Atheists don't know how that happened. They don't really care how that happened. It just is. And they take that by faith, right? (laughs) Interesting. But impersonal matter and impersonal energy, well, they, they just are. They are the ultimate reality. Over billions of years and with no creator, no intelligence, no design, no plan, no purpose, there emerges from lifeless matter and energy the mind-numbing complexities of all biological life. There are plants and animals and, and human beings. From the micro to the macro, life just happened. All of it from impersonal, lifeless matter and energy. And that's where the there is no God worldview lands. And of course, you know this very well, that this is the, this is the prevailing worldview in our world, isn't it? It's taught in our schools. It's taught in our universities as fact. Lifeless energy and matter brought forth life. For Christians... It's the other way around, isn't it? First there was 
life. There was life, the ultimate reality, God and life in himself. Then there was physical matter and energy that were made by God through the word who is Jesus, right? 1-3 of John. And then into this, God says, let there be life. Life from him. And so life sprouts and it, it swarms and it flies and it swims and it creeps and it walks and it multiplies. And then as his ultimate creative act, God takes some of the lifeless matter, the dust that he has made, and he breathes into it his life. And, it, and he breathes into this pinnacle of his creative activity, life biological, but also life spiritual. Because this creature he makes in his own image. Right? Genesis 1.27 So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female. He created them. And all of this is what we read about in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the first two chapters of our Bibles. God made life biological. And for mankind, he made life biological and spiritual. Life that would not end. Life forever. The only thing that could threaten life for God's creation would be sin. If the image bearer rebelled against his creator, sin would enter his heart and death would be the result, death physical and death spiritual. That's what our Bibles say. As we all know too well, this of course is exactly what happens. Genesis chapter 3 records all of the dark details of that. Mankind's first parents, Adam and Eve, they rebel. Sin enters the world and with it, death. And this death sentence is passed on to all of Adam and Eve's descendants right down to you and me. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is what, church? It's death. Sin brings death. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin brings death. All have sinned. From the Bible, the best way to understand death is to think of it as separation. When you hear the word death in the Bible, think separation. Death separates us from the physical life that we have known. From physical, biological life, when death happens, well, we're separated from that biological life. We don't get to be a part of that anymore. That's what death does. It separates us from that. And death separates us spiritually, the Bible says, from God, from life with him. And sin does that. It, just, it always separates physically and spiritually. When our first parent's nature was infected with sin in Genesis 3, we inherited their sin nature. And the proof of that is that we have all what? We've all sinned against God. You have, I I have, and, and we know that we have. 
We can be born physically alive and have that life for a little while, but we're all born spiritually dead. The Word of God says, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Before Christ came into your life, you were dead. Not just some of us, all of us. All of us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God didn't want that to be the end of the story, did he? And that's the glorious truth of the Bible. God did not want that to be how the story ends, dead spiritually and separated from him forever. And so the rest of the Bible from Genesis chapter 3 on, what is the Bible about? Well, it is the story of how God determines to make available new spiritual life to anyone who is spiritually dead. To give them life. And that's what John says in his gospel. Right here. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life. God life in you who are dead. And so John goes from zero to, to 60, just declaring right out of the gate that Jesus is eternal. He's eternal God. He's the second member of the Trinity, and he's the maker of all things. And with his, his foot still mashing on the pedal, he says, oh, and he is life. The word Jesus is life. In him was life. And what John means by that is that in Jesus we can have new spiritual life. In Jesus, the intentions of God from Genesis 3 on are going to be realized. In Jesus, we can have a new, eternal, forgiven for all, from all sin, saving relationship with God forever, and this is life that we cannot have apart from Jesus Christ. It's the very opposite of the spiritual death and separation from God that you and I were born into. It's the very opposite of that. In him was life. And we know that this is how John wants us to understand his statement in verse 4. We know this for a couple of reasons. For one thing, the word for life that John uses in verse 4 is the Greek word zoe. Not bios. There are two Greek words for life. Zoe and bios. Bios, what English word do we get from that word? Biology, right? Because that word refers to all biological life. Bios. That's a form of life, but it's not what John is thinking about at all. Because he uses the other Greek word for life here in verse 4. He uses the word zoe. And zoe has to do with spiritual life. The most real life that there is. When a little baby comes into the world and that that, that baby is born with biological life that can be measured and and weighed and, and touched. But there is another kind of life that can't be quantified. It can't be measured. It can't be weighed. It can't be seen with our eyes spiritual life it's not going to be found on a strand of dna 
It's spiritual life. Zoe, it's the most real and essential life of all, and it's found in Jesus. That's what verse 4 says. In him was Zoe. Real life, spiritual life. And the fact that John is thinking about new, eternal, forgiven, saving, spiritual life with God forever in Jesus, well, that is confirmed if we simply go to other places in the Gospel of John where John uses this word life. We can just take from John and we know what he's thinking here in verse 4 of chapter 1. For example, let me just give you a few. There are many that we could look at. But in John 3.16, for starters, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What word do you think John used there? Zoe. Not bios, but Zoe. John says in, or Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has what? Eternal life. That's Zoe right there. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Zoe. In other words, apart from believing in Jesus, we're all dead spiritually. In order to live forever and not come into judgment, we need the gift of Zoe. We need the gift of life. And that life is in Jesus. Or how about John chapter 10, verse 10? Jesus will say, I came that they may have what, church? Life and have it abundantly, overflowing. Take a guess what Greek word he chooses there. Zoe, yeah. If you flip your note page over, in verse 28 of chapter 10, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Or how about John 14, 6? Many of you know this verse by heart. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. What word do you think he uses? Zoe, yes. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says in this verse that you can't have God unless you have me first. Unless you have life in me. By faith in me. And then just kind of put a capstone on all of this. In John's epistle, near the end of our Bibles, 1 John chapter 5, check out these two verses, 11 and 12. God gave us what? Eternal life. And this life is found where? In his son. Whoever has the son has. Whoever does not have the son does not have. Could it be any more clear? All four instances of that there, it's Zoe. It's the word Zoe. If we have Jesus, we have life. If we reject Jesus, we reject life, spiritual life, eternal life, life with God forever as a forgiven sinner, life that saves us from judgment and from hell. It's in Jesus, and it's in Jesus alone. Amen Amen. and amen. So John's on a roll, man. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now here John gives us another of his favorite words, the word light. This word, we're going to come on to this word no less than 20 times as we study the gospel of John. He likes this word. 
The Holy Spirit through John says, listen, new life in Jesus brings a spiritual life into your life that you did not have before. New life makes spiritual seeing possible. When spiritual death is replaced with spiritual life, spiritual darkness is replaced with spiritual sight. The light shines. The life light shines. And this is exactly what Jesus will say to us when we get to chapter 8 in our study. Check this out. John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus says, I am the what? I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Zoe. That's what we're talking about. The light of life. The light that is a brand new life. They're really the same thing. The light and the life. When we believe in Jesus, who he is, as the Bible says he is, sinless God in human flesh, when we believe what he did, as the Bible tells us that he did it, that he died for sinners and he rose from the dead to prove he had done it, when we believe those things, we receive life. We receive life. Do you have life today? But we also receive sight. And we receive sight because Jesus is the light. We have the true light, the God light illuminating. The light shines in the darkness. In the spiritual darkness, the light of Jesus shines. He enters our world. It's a sin-darkened, spiritually dead world. And he radiates, he shines his life and his light so that we can see God and know God. And this will be plain, even more plain in just a moment. And coming into this world of ours means that Jesus comes into our darkness. That's the beauty of Jesus putting on flesh, as verse 14 says. He comes into our darkness. He lives in incomprehensible light, but he comes into our darkness. We're spiritually dead. We're spiritually blind. That's the condition of the entire world of fallen humanity. Jesus comes in spiritually alive and as light. Now, church family, what must darkness do in the presence of light? Flee. That Was that the word? Flee? Flee. That's exactly right. Darkness in the presence of light must always flee the light, right? The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not what? Overcome it. Because it can't overcome it. Now, I cannot read that verse without my mind instantly going back to my days as a high schooler in Carlsbad, New Mexico, where my dad pastored a church. So I I lived in Carlsbad, New Mexico in my high school years. We were only 25 miles from Carlsbad Caverns National Park. So as a result of that, I have been to that mammoth cave dozens, literally dozens of times in my high school years. It was a popular dating destination for us guys. We would take our, our dates and we would go on a date to Carlsbad Caverns National Park. How many kids get to do that, right? And, and you could treat your date to dinner 750 feet underground. It was really cool. 
So I've been to the cave many, many times. But back then, they don't do this anymore, but back then you, you had a park ranger who would walk with you, about a group of 50, and he would walk with you through the cave and he would give you the tour and he would talk to you about all the stuff as you went through. Now it's a self-guided tour. You can't do that anymore. But back then there was this point in the tour where the ranger would, would stop the group and he would turn off the lights in that part of the cave where you were. And there was not one photon of light 500 feet underground. I mean, it was an utter, complete, total blackness and darkness that you could literally feel. You could feel it. It was such a a heavy, dark darkness. But then... The, the ranger would take this little Bic lighter and he would light it. And that one little light, that one little flame from his Bic lighter would instantly do what to the darkness? Make it flee. It would make it flee. Instantly the darkness, so thick, so oppressive and heavy, it vanished even in the presence of one little flame. It could not overcome Just one little flame. Jesus, the light, the light, shines in the spiritual blackness, the suffocating spiritual darkness that was made by sin and death. And into this darkness he shines and the darkness cannot overcome it. It can't. The light who is Jesus always overcomes the darkness. Amen? In him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We've been in the heavenlies, brothers and sisters, for five verses now. We've been in the heavenly places. Literally, John has has had his foot on the gas this whole time, telling us things about Jesus. And then comes verses 6, 7, and 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him, through his testimony. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now, I read this, and I think to myself, that's, that's odd. That's really odd. We've been cruising in the stratosphere with these massive, incredible, majestic truths about the Son of God, staggering truths about Him, eternal God, second person of the Trinity, the maker of all things, the spiritual light and life that shines in the darkness, massive truth. And then John slams on the brakes. And at least it feels that way to me. And he says, God sent a guy named John the Baptist on ahead of Jesus to sort of prepare the way for his arrival. He wasn't the light. I'm just letting you know. And I, I read that. And then I read verse 9 because John mashes on the pedal one more time and we go from zero to 100 again. 
The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He, was, he came to his own. His own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor the will of flesh nor the will of man, but of God. Zero to a hundred. Now why did John do that in 6, 7, and 8? I don't know. I have no clue. <laughs> I, I really don't know. Why this little parenthesis? Because there was just this massive flow happening. I'm sure the Holy Spirit has a really great reason. I just don't know what it is. But I do know this. We're going to hold on to verses 6, 7, and 8. And we're going to come back and we're going to get them when we get to verses 19 and following. Because that's where we're going to step into the amazing work, the amazing role of John the Baptist in a big way. We're not going to ignore 6, 7, and 8 this morning. We're just going to bank those three verses for a little while. You okay with that? You've got to be okay with that because that's really what we're doing, right? Okay, so, so John the disciple, once again, he, he, he mashes the pedal to the floor and, and we're back into the, into the heavenlies. In verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. John says the true light, the one who is life, we're not waiting for him anymore. We're not waiting for him. We're not looking forward to his arrival. He has what? He's come. He's come. He's come into the worlds that he's made, the world that rebelled against him, bringing death and darkness and separation. He's come into that world, and rather than condemn the world, he offers it the light life found in himself. When John says the true light which gives light to everyone, he's not saying here, as some try to claim, that salvation is universal. And this is one of the proof texts for that, that Jesus enlightens everyone's spiritual darkness. John is not saying that. John is saying something similar to what a doctor might say when a doctor would say, this flu vaccine works for everyone. Now, you and I hear that from the doctor, and we know instantly what the doctor means. The flu vaccine works for everyone who what? Who gets the shot who takes the vaccine. It works for everyone, but you got to what? you got to take it. you got to receive it. The very same thought is in verse 9 with John. The true light that gives light to everyone means everyone who will receive the light. It's good for everybody, but it's only going to be applicable to those who receive it. Unfortunately, Not everyone wants the cure for spiritual death, darkness, and separation that comes with sin. The vaccine against an eternity in hell, it's there, it's offered, but it can be refused. It can be rejected. Not everyone wants the life light that Jesus brings. And so at the end of verse 10, yet the world did not know him. Know in the sense of want him that's confirmed in verse 11 he came to his own and his own people did not receive him this is such a heartbreaking 
verse, verse 11. Verses 10 and 11 both. God sends his solution to sin and separation, sends it to the whole world in the person of Jesus, but he sends, sends Jesus specifically to the Jewish people, those people who are his own people. Jesus was a Jewish person entering the world through the nation of the Jews as part of God's plan and his call through Abraham. Jesus comes through the Jewish nation and the nation does not want him. Of all the people in the world, the Jewish people have been told for centuries, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. He's going to look like this. He's going to do these things. He's coming, he's coming. And, and then when he comes, his own people, what? They reject him. They reject the light when it shines in their midst. Jesus will say this in John chapter 5, verse 40. And you can just hear the ache in his voice when he says, You refuse to come to me that you may have what? Life. You refuse to come to me. Jesus, the light-giving, life-giving light is offered to the world as the only cure for sin's curse, but it's rejected by most in the world. Not by all, but by most. And for 20 centuries, it has been this way. The life and the light rejected by the world. Ah. Oh, but, but then you come to verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. Children of God. Are you a child of God today? Amen. Amen. Who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. Born of God. A child of God born of God. God's saving purpose, his plan, it can't be thwarted. It will not be thwarted. Even though most of the world rejects Jesus. But to all who did receive him. That little word, but. It's such a wonderful word. Just just three letters long. You might just run right past it. And yet that little word is loaded, isn't it? It's loaded with hope. It's loaded with power. It says that while most reject the life light found in Jesus, we don't have to be among that group. We don't have to be. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To believe in Jesus is to receive Jesus. To receive Jesus is to believe in Jesus. To believe in his name is to believe in all that Jesus is and does. Your name. Your name. I just have to say your name. Chris. Or or Ben. Or Betty. Or... Janet, I just have to say your name. And when I say your name, I am talking about all that represents you. Just with that name. When you say my name, Tim. Tim, that that, that captures everything that I am. And so when it says believe in Jesus' name, that's believe in all that Jesus is. Who he is what he's done. Second, eternal God, second member of the Trinity, the maker of all things, light and life. Believe in him. 
receive Him. All of Him. And when we do that, we're given the right to become children of God. That's the true nature of all true Christians. Children of God. So I will ask you again, are you a child of God today? Are you? Do you know with an absolute certainty that you are a child of God? We're children of God if we're Christians. We're not just religious people who don't have anything better to do on a Sunday morning than come and listen to 10. We're not, we're not just people who follow ancient creeds because we like old stuff. We're, we're not people who, who go through religious ceremonies because we're, we just like ceremonies. And we're not people who have adopted a certain moral code because it, you know, it makes us feel good. No, no. The true nature of a believer is that you are a child of God through believing in Jesus, who he is and what he's done. We can call God our father. You can call God your dad today. Your Abba. Romans 8 tells us we have permission to do that because we are his everlasting sons and daughters through faith in Jesus Christ, his children. John enlarges on this in verse 13. Children of God who were born not of blood nor the will of the flesh nor the will of man, but born of We've all been created. We've all been born physically alive, but we were born spiritually dead. But remember, God didn't want the story to end like that. And so God makes it possible for us to be born anew, to have a spiritual rebirth through believing and receiving Jesus as Zoe, life. The Apostle Paul will say it this way, 2 Corinthians 5.17. You know this verse. If anyone is in Christ He is a what? A new creation. A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul and John are talking about the same thing. A new birth. A new creation. One who is spiritually dead without life and without hope, spiritually orphaned as it were, is reborn and made a member in full standing in the household of God called a son or daughter of the Most High. Through Jesus. John tells us in verse 13, who were born not of blood. What does that mean? Not of blood. Heritage. Ancestors. Family tree. We're not granted spiritual life because of our parents or our grandparents or our ethnic line. There are some who believe they're going to be in heaven because of their ethnicity and nothing more. John says, no, we're not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. What does that mean? Not because of our own personal effort, our own will, our own personal attempts to be good and to do good things. We're not going to be reborn by that, nor born of the will of man. What does that mean? Acts, the acts of others, some man-invented religious system of rules or sacraments or steps that you you take to get to God. Those are all over the place. 
No, you're not born of the will of man. Many today buy into one or more of these thoughts, but they're all dead ends. We're never going to come to God and be a child of God by family heritage. We're never going to become a child of God by efforts done in our flesh, and we will never become a child of God by some man-made system of rules. It's impossible. Children of God who were born of God. Do you get it? Born of God. Only God can do this miracle of rebirth in a dead sinner's life, spiritually dead sinner's life. And he does it through Jesus, who is what? Life. Zoe. He does it through Jesus. And here, church family, we are introduced really to the true nature of God when it comes to you and me. God is by nature, in verse 13, he is by nature a savior. And we don't want to miss that. He's a savior. He's a savior whose mighty power causes us to receive his son and to believe in his name. He does this. He makes this happen. We don't make it happen. He makes it happen. We are born of God, by God. John will have a lot more to say about this as we make our way through his book. But for now, it's enough for us to know that at the very center of the nature of who God is, he is a savior. Can you say amen to that? He's a savior. It's in his heart to give life to dead sinners, to make them children born of him. Titus chapter 3, verses 4, 5, and 6 says it like this. But when the kindness and love of what? God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of, interesting word, rebirth, born, and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. As I say, John will have a whole lot more to say to us about this as we move through his amazing book. But for now, what we most want to know from the very beginning is that God will work to give life to dead sinners and his heart is to do that and the way he is going to do that is through his son. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Amen and amen. We've been in the heavenlies, church. We've been in the heavenlies. Let's pray together. Well, thank you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for taking us from zero to 100. It's been wonderful. It's been rich. It's been, it's been more than we could have imagined. We've feasted today on the truths of, of Jesus. You've made that possible. We say thank you for that. Clint prayed at the beginning of our time in the word that that you would speak to us through your word. I I believe you've done that. Oh, how we thank you for Jesus. 
who is life, who is light for our spiritual blindness and our spiritual deadness. He is life. And oh, thank you, Heavenly Father, for being a God who longs to save. For you have saved us. Not because of anything we've done, but because of your mercy and your grace and your great love. And now, Heavenly Father, we're going to honor you and honor the life as we gather around the table together. We share the communion elements, the bread and the cup. This is a sacred moment for us. It's also an act of obedience because Jesus, on the night before you were crucified, you asked us to remember through these two memorial elements, the bread and the cup, to remember your body, which would hang on a cross to pay our sin debt. You would give your life for our life, and you would pour out your blood, your life blood, to pay a sin debt we could never pay. It's a joy for us to remember you now. We do so with humble, grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Friends who are with us today, if, if you know Jesus, if you, as I asked you a moment ago, I asked you, are you a child of God? If you know that you're a child of God, this table belongs to you. If you have given your life to Jesus Christ in simple saving faith, this table belongs to you. Jesus would want you to remember what it costs for you to have his life. If you don't know Jesus yet in the way that we've been talking about or you're not sure, I would just encourage you in this moment to let those elements pass. Learn more about Jesus. Have new life in him. And then do this. Because this only has meaning for those who have life in Jesus Christ today. If that's you, this table belongs to you. So I'm going to invite the ushers, if they would come, who are going to help to serve you. They would come and they'll, they'll pass the elements and we just ask you to take the bread and the cup and hold on to that and then we'll all partake together. So guys, uh, help yourself to that. Clint's going to play while the elements are passed. And then we'll partake together.